Please do have, have open your Bibles again once more before you to Titus chapter 3 there on page 998. And we're going to be focusing this evening on the first seven verses of chapter 3. Finishing up next week, Lord willing, with verses 8 to 15. And this passage this evening is full of rich spiritual encouragement, brothers and sisters. It is full of more grace. We saw in the School of Grace last Sunday evening, if you were here with us, some of what it means to experience the grace of God as it appears to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this evening, this evening, we go even further into the heart of God's grace revealed to us in Christ. This is, this is a text full of life-giving truth this evening. It's a little bit like if some of you may have tuned in to the World Cup over the last few days on the BBC, as you, as you wind up each time, they've got their little intro, don't they? And part of that intro, is a, a, a nesting set of Russian dolls. You know what I mean? Where, where each one opens and another one comes out. And finally, you get to that last Russian doll, doll that's in the center of all of them. That's a bit what this text is like this evening. We've been, we've been seeing the gospel of grace held out to us all through Titus. Chapter 1, verse 2, it was the hope of eternal life. And then that was opened up to us. And, and then we got to chapter 2. And, and inside of that, we saw there was even more richness as grace appeared. Like an epiphany. Light, the light of grace in the gospel bursting forth upon us in the Lord Jesus. But in chapter 3, in chapter 3, we open it once more. And we see at the very center of the gospel of grace, the message that God, by his spirit, by the spirit of Christ, regenerates people. This is a text that centers on regeneration. And my prayer, my hope for us tonight is that we will grasp the glorious grace of regeneration. If you are a believer here tonight, I want you, by God's grace, to leave this place stirred in your heart, overflowing with love in your heart, because you have understood even more what regeneration is and what the Lord has done for you. And if you are not someone here this evening who has yet professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do exactly what this text is talking about for you this evening, that he would regenerate you, that he would make new life spring forth in your heart. But I'm getting ahead of myself because this is an exciting text. Let's, let's see where this text takes us as we look at how the grace of God regenerates sinners and makes them ready for good works. The grace of God regenerates sinners and makes them ready for good works. Let's have a look briefly at how this text is put together and then we'll come back to look at regeneration and readiness for good works. First of all, have a look at verses 1 and 2. Do you see there? Those are the instructions, aren't they, in this text? Those are the commands. Remind them. Be submissive. Be obedient. Be ready. And it goes on in verses 1 and 2. These are the commands of what it looks like to live that godly life. We've said Titus is all about grace training for godly living. And this is what the godly life looks like. Paul goes back in verses 1 and 2 to those instructions, those commands, things that we must do. 
But do you, do, you, do you see then where he turns immediately? He can hardly go, he can hardly go two verses between verses 11 to 14 that we saw just overflowing with grace last week, and then he turns back to it again in verses 3 to 7. He grounds those commands of verses 1 and 2 in what follows. Do you see that little word for in verse 3? How is it possible that we are able to live the kind of godly lives that verses 1 and 2 command us to live? It's possible because what's happened? We ourselves were once this way, but, verse 4, God's grace and goodness and loving kindness and mercy has changed us. There's been a transformation that's taken place. And that's what verses 3 to 7 are all about. They give us, they give us the transforming basis upon which it's possible to follow those commands of verses 1 and 2. But look a bit closer within verses 3 to 7. We've seen already the contrast That but, that beautiful gospel word, that but at the beginning of verse 4. We were once this way, verse 3, but now, verse 4, this has happened. In fact, there's a a double but. He sneaks it in again in verse 5. Do you see it? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, there's a gospel contrast that Paul insists we must understand. If we've not understood this contrast, we have not been gripped by the gospel of grace. And we will not be able to live the godly kind of life that's held out in verses 1 and 2. And at the heart of this contrast, this gospel of grace contrast, is what we see there in verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us able to go back up then to verses 1 and 2 and be ready in the language at the end of verse 1, for every good work. Grace trains us for godliness. Grace makes it possible to live a godly life. But at the center, at the heart of grace, is this wonderful truth of what God does in regeneration. Regeneration prepares us, makes us ready for good works. So we're going to look at this text a little bit more deeply now. We're going to do so in in this way. First, we'll start with verse 3. We're going to start with the negative side of that gospel contrast. What does the unregenerate life look like? And that's, that's a big term, isn't it? That's a gospel, biblical, theological kind of term to talk about unregenerate. Do we know what that means? Well, it's very simple if we want to paraphrase it. To be unregenerate is to be spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead. That's what it means to be unregenerate. And the kind of life that a spiritually dead person lives is the kind of life described for us in verse 3. Look at it again with me, if you would. For we ourselves were once foolish. The unregenerate, the spiritually dead person, is a fool. He or she is a fool because... Well, that's, that's the kind of life one lives if one is spiritually dead with a hard heart of stone. This is not the kind of foolishness that's laughable. It's not the kind of court jester dancing around, making jokes, getting a laugh. It's not a light-hearted kind of foolishness. This is a tragic foolishness. It's an intellectual kind of darkness. You cannot see the truth of the world as it is, the truth of your own heart as it is, the truth of God 
as he is when you are spiritually dead, because you are blind, you are foolish. But it's more than just an intellectual foolishness. It's the foolishness that issues in foolish living. It's a moral foolishness. You know what I mean. If you look back, if, if you look back at the way you once were, you know that there was a time before you came to Christ, if that's you, when you were making foolish choice after foolish choice. When again and again you chose to do things that you knew, even in that state, were not going to go in good directions, that were going to have consequences in your relationships, in your life. You might not have given a second thought to God and how it was that you were disobeying God, but you knew, upon reflection, that you were making poor choices. That's the kind of foolishness that Paul talks about, that characterizes the unregenerate life. But there's more. Disobedience. Disobedience. Disobedience to parents. So if you're a, if you are a young person here tonight, you know what I mean. You know that it's hard to obey. But it's not just the children who know this. All of us know what it's like to be disobedient to those in authority over us. And all of us, if we've had our eyes opened, if this is what we once were but now are not, know that we are disobedient before God first and foremost. We are rebels with rebellious hearts. Where I went to university in Indiana, we were just a few miles down the road from Fairmount, Indiana, the home of James Dean, the rebel without a cause from the 1950s. And it was cool to be James Dean. It was cool to be a rebel. But it is not cool to be a rebel before God. Because a rebel before God, a traitor who breaks God's law, one who disregards law, brings down wrath and condemnation upon himself or herself. Disobedience is not cool. It's not funny. It brings condemnation. Led astray, we're told. This is what it was like to live before grace grasped us. Led astray. We were enslaved to various passions and desires. We were not our own masters. We were born along by our own sinful desires by our peers around us. We were born along by the culture in which we live. We were not, even if we thought we were, we were not independently minded, but we were enslaved to sin because that's what it means to be unregenerate. It's to be like those proverbial lemmings, those little creatures that follow one another. And where do they go? They continually walk over the cliff top and plunge to their deaths at the bottom. That's what it's like to be led astray by the worldly way of living around us, Paul says. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating one another. Augustine, that father of the church from long ago, once said, what's it like to be a sinner? If you had to capture what it's like to be a sinner, what's that like? And Augustine said, well, what it's like is to be curved in on yourself to such a degree that you become your own God and you pay no mind to those around you. You are self-centered. Your center of gravity is completely within yourself. And that causes all kinds of problems in your life and your relationships, not least your relationship to God, the God who made you, curved in on ourselves. That's what the unregenerate life is like, according to verse 3. 
to be spiritually dead. And so we've got to pause there because that's, that's our point of entry into this text about the good news of regeneration. Paul wants to say, he wants, he wants Titus to say, that's what you once were. But there may be some here tonight for whom this is still the case. Perhaps you've come in this evening and this is still the kind of life that you live. Characterized by all of these things. And of course it is, because you're spiritually dead. Your heart has not been changed. You've not turned to the Lord Jesus. You've not been made alive. And you are curved in on yourself with no hope of rescue. If that's you tonight, then can I implore you, can I plead with you to listen carefully as we move from verse 3 to verse 4. But for many of you, For many of you, it's just as Paul says here, isn't it? For we once were this, but now, praise God, now we are no longer that. What we once were, we no longer are by the grace of God. And we can't go back there. You see, that's what he's doing. He's reminding them what their life was like before they were made alive by the gospel. And he's telling them, you cannot go back to that. That is not who you are. That's the kind of life that a spiritually dead person lives. If you've been made alive by the Spirit, then that's no longer you, and you can't live that way. It's verses 1 and 2 where we will end up eventually in a few minutes. That's where your life needs to be headed. Don't go back. Don't make a U-turn and go back to verse 3. It also means that we need to be patient as we come back to verse 2 later. We'll talk about this a bit more because we remember, we know what it was like to be without Christ, to be spiritually dead. And as we engage with those around us in the world who have not been regenerated by by the Lord's grace, we need to be patient with them. But we don't live like that anymore. That is not who we are. And so we've got to pause even even just after verse 3. We've got to pause and give glory to God and praise God that what we once were, by his grace, that is no longer what we are. We are no longer unregenerate because, and here we pivot towards verses 4 to 7, because grace regenerates. Grace regenerates. Look again at verses 4 and following. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... And here I'm going to break off from what you've got in front of you. You can keep looking at that, but I want you to listen. And I'm going to read you what a literal translation of the word-for-word ordering is in the Greek text of the original of verse 5, because it's very striking. Verse 5 begins this way. Not of works, that is, those works in righteousness which we have done. We, there's an emphatic we added there, not of works, those in righteousness which we have done, we, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That's, that's the original word order. And do you hear the emphasis there? You can't bring that out in smooth English. You just can't. So the English translation you have in front of you is beautiful. It captures it. But do you see what it does? It brings the he saved us right to the beginning of verse Five, and you miss just a little bit of that emphasis. Not of works which we have done, we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That's where it lands. Incredible emphasis in the original word order here. Not we, but he. Not we, but he. And, and again, do you see how we're driven back to the gospel of grace? 
There is nothing we have done. There is nothing we could have done. The ground of our salvation, if we are to be saved, is only from God. It's God's goodness, verse 4. It's his loving kindness. It's his nature. His nature is always to have mercy and to be merciful upon sinners. That's the grounds of our salvation, not of our works, not of our best works, not even works done in righteousness. Verse 5 is talking about the best things that you ever think you've done, the best service you've ever given to anyone else, the most selfless you ever think you've been, the best performance, morally or otherwise, that you think you've ever achieved. Not that can save you, says verse 5. Not because you're smarter than other people, not because you come from better stock or a better family than others around you, not because you are in any way more deserving than others around you. Not because you've picked yourself up and got yourself together. Not because you're kinder or better in any way than any of your friends, co-workers, or others. Not, verse 5 says, because of any of our works. Only because of him. He has saved us. He has saved us. God saves by His grace. It is a completely undeserved gift. No thing that you could ever do could ever bring you to a place that you deserve that gift. This is a glorious gospel of grace for us to hear. A glorious message. But it's it's even better than that because verse 5 goes on. And this takes us to regeneration, the heart of this gospel of grace here in Titus chapter 3. The grounds of God's grace is in his sheer mercy and loving nature, his kindness to show grace to sinners. But how does he save? How does he do that? Look at verse 5 as it finishes. He does so by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We might say, if we've been around this place long enough and we've been reading up and maybe listening to some podcasts or listening carefully to what Andy's been teaching us, how are we say, well, how are we justified? We're justified by grace through faith, aren't we? And that's absolutely true. But that's not where Paul goes here. He doesn't emphasize faith. He doesn't emphasize faith, which in the language of the theologians is the instrument that God uses for us to take hold of the gracious gospel, the message that he offers. We receive God's grace by faith, by having trust, by believing that Jesus died for our sins, for my sins, and that he lived that perfect life and was raised for our justification. We grasp hold of that message by faith. But Paul says here, there's something that goes even deeper. There's a deeper foundation here. There's a deeper magic here going on. And that's regeneration. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying repent and believe. Because how can you do that? How can you be moved to repentance and faith if you are dead, if your heart is dead and cold as a stone? You can't repent. You cannot believe. You can't do what's needed. And so you're lost. How can you be saved if you are spiritually dead? So please listen. Please listen here to what Paul is saying and how that applies to each and every one of us in here this evening. If you have not yet professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you are an unbeliever, if you are unregenerate, listen up, because this is your only hope. And it's a beautiful hope. It's not the Lord telling you that you need to do something. Instead, he's telling you, he does the saving. He does the work by his Holy Spirit. He reaches out and directly changes the heart of a sinner and makes it alive. And if you're a believer in here this evening, I hope that this is taking you back in in wonder and awe and thanksgiving back to that time when the Lord did this for you. When he mysteriously changed your heart, you probably can't even put your finger on the moment. You might not be able to remember the day or the hour when the Lord first changed you because this is the sort of thing that happens mysteriously. It's not a conscious thing. It's not something that you can time stamp. It's something that the Lord does by his Holy Spirit, directly by his supernatural, glorious, gracious action on the heart of a sinner. When we hear the word regeneration, what do you think of? Boys and girls, maybe if you've been in school, in a science lab. I know with my boys, we've been going around over the last few years to open days for secondary schools. And one of the things that schools love to do is put out all the fun experiments that you get to do in biology and physics and things like that. And in the biology room, you often see dissections, right? Maybe a frog or maybe a rat, maybe a starfish. Maybe when you hear regeneration, you think of something like a starfish, that when one of those arms is cut off or lost in some way, the starfish, beautiful design by our creator, isn't it? The starfish can do what? Can regenerate that arm. It can grow, regrow an arm. That's a beautiful design that the Lord has written into the DNA of a starfish. Is that the kind of regeneration that we're talking about here in verse 5? Regrowing a part of ourselves? Reaching out, working, working from the heart, but working out with God's help, of course, to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord. Is that the kind of regeneration we're talking about? It's not. It's not because you see the starfish, the starfish is still alive. If you chop the starfish up completely, don't, don't do that, sorry, but if you did, if the starfish is dead, the starfish can no longer regenerate. No regeneration happening with a dead starfish on the lab table. We saw a scalpel just the other day and a heart laid out at an open day. And that scalpel is a wonderful instrument in the hands of a surgeon who wants to do heart surgery on someone who's ill. But that scalpel is going to do no good if you have a dead and cold heart lying on the surgeon's table. The best surgeon in the world with the sharpest scalpel in her hand can do nothing for that dead heart. Regeneration in this text is even more glorious than what a starfish can do, even more amazing than what the best heart surgeon can do. It is taking that dead and cold heart off of the table. In fact, it's taking a corpse that lies there dead and cold, and the Lord breathes new life into that corpse. And the gasp of new, fresh life inhaled into the lungs, comes. And that body sits up, clothed and alive and full and warm of life. That's what regeneration is. And that's what the Lord does by His Holy Spirit, 
supernaturally in the heart of a sinner. It's supernatural power reaching in from the outside to change us from the inside. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 5 says. This is the work, brothers and sisters, of God the Holy Spirit. It's the business the Holy Spirit's in. Think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit hovers over the formless and void, the emptiness, the waters, the chaos. And what happens? Life bursts forth at the creation. The Holy Spirit in Ezekiel chapter 37, those dead, dry bones desiccated, crumbling to dust there in the vision that Ezekiel sees, And then the Spirit comes. And what happens? Those bones come together. And flesh is knit to the bones. And breath is breathed into those dead bodies. Life comes where the Spirit blows. Joel, our text from this evening, Joel chapter 2. Again, promise that in the last days, God would not just give his Spirit. Do you remember the language there in Joel? He wouldn't just give his spirit. He would pour out his spirit, pour it out richly, not not in dribs and drabs, not a trickle, but that in the last days the spirit would be poured out, this life-giving spirit who gives life to sinners, who enlivens their hearts. John chapter 3 Go, go out this week and spend some time, would you, reading John chapter 3, the first part with Nicodemus? Because what is, what's held before us there is a beautiful picture of exactly what Titus chapter 3 verse 5 is talking about. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? How can I go back into my mother's womb? This is an impossibility. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's not the kind of rebirth I'm talking about. It's a new birth that I'm talking about, that only comes from heaven, only comes when the power of the Holy Spirit brings new life. And the Spirit, what does Jesus say there? Blows where he will, just like the wind. We don't control that, and we can't explain that. It's the Spirit who gives life. We could go on. Looking at places in Scripture where it's revealed to us That the life-giving spirit is God working to regenerate, to do the work of regeneration. Regeneration and renewal. The word there is literally a new creation. What the spirit does in the heart of a sinner is to recreate in a way even more glorious than what happened in Genesis 1. That's what happens in the heart of a sinner when the spirit comes and works. And I want to pause here just for a moment, especially for those of you who have who have known and loved the Lord Jesus for many years perhaps, because I want to I want to drive this truth of regeneration into your hearts so that you will be able to do nothing but praise your God for the work of regeneration that he has done in your life. Because this regenerate this regeneration, this regenerative work that's held out to us here is a Trinitarian work, isn't it? You see, in in verse 4, this is the work of God, our Savior, who reveals this gospel that appears in the gospel. Work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, verse 6. Because he's the one through whom, verse 5, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian work 
of salvation, of regeneration held out before us. The Spirit poured out by the Son who was sent by the Father to save sinners and bring them to himself, a people for his own treasured and glorious possession. That is glorious. That is beautiful. And I hope that stirs your heart to praise this evening. We've also got to draw this distinction between regeneration and faith. I alluded to this earlier. Let me do this quickly if I can. Regeneration is not the same thing as saving faith. What do I mean? Regeneration is necessary for repentance and faith. Remember, remember the example. Can a, can a dead body respond in any way to the doctor who's working on him or her? No. There's no response possible if death has already happened. And that is spiritually what's true of us. So regeneration has to take place before the sinner can even hear the call of the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. And that is the secret and beautiful work of the Holy Spirit, to do that work. And what that means is we need to be humble. Because because sometimes we might just be tempted to think, well, why why do I have faith and my family member, my friend, my coworker doesn't have faith. Well, maybe it's just because, actually, I listened up. Maybe it's just because I was a little bit more spiritually sensitive. Maybe it's because I responded in faith to the Lord Jesus. Absolutely false, says Titus verse, chapter 3, verse 5. Regeneration had to happen in your heart before you could do anything. And that should humble you. And that should drive you back in gratitude to the Lord who did that work in your heart. Regeneration is also distinct from calling. Yes, God uses the word and the word proclaimed to save sinners. But that word is nothing apart from his spirit taking it and working it and changing hearts and opening ears so that that word can go in. Nothing happens unless the spirit regenerates the sinner first. We also see that regeneration in verse 5 is like baptism. It's like the washing, uh, we're told. It's a washing of regeneration, not a physical washing. We don't believe that the waters of baptism, the real liquid that's poured on the head of a believer, or if that believer is immersed in water, that's not what saves anybody, infant or adult. That's not what does the saving. But it's a picture of the way God does the saving. Because regeneration is a spiritual washing and then raising to new life out of the water. It's a secret, supernatural work of the Lord God by his spirit. It's like baptism. And we emerge clean, new, and alive for God and for his service. And finally, regeneration is is total. What do I mean by that? It's not consummate. We will, we will one day be completely made new. Bodies that don't decay. Wills that only want what God wants. That's, that's a day for the future that we long for and look forward to. But already, even now, this new creation has broken in. Broken into your hearts if you believe in Christ. And it's a total regeneration. That means your mind is renewed. So that you can understand things you could never understand before. You can open up the Bible and understand what's, what's being said. It means that your heart has been made new. Your emotions, your affections, you want to worship God. You want to serve God. Your will has been renewed. 
all of you. It's a total regeneration. Yes, you're going to be growing in faith and godliness and sanctification over a lifetime. But you have been believer. If you are in Christ, you've been totally, completely, if not consummately, made new in regeneration. New life that's created and sustained by the Holy Spirit. And what are we supposed to do as a result of this new life, this wonderful grace of regeneration. Well, verse 7 directs us back then to verses 1 and 2, and that's where we'll close this evening. Look at verse 7 for a moment. Do you see that? So that. That's always the purpose clause. That's a signal to tell us this is where it's all going. So that, being justified by his grace. Again, Paul just, he can't get enough grace in this letter. He, he can hardly go a verse without talking about grace in some way. But he's about to leave that and move towards what it is that grace trains us for. It says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become what? We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. Partakers of an inheritance. An inheritance that we didn't deserve, full of riches, characterized by Paul as hope of eternal life. The same thing he started with in chapter 1, verse 2. That is not just a hope for the future, but a hope that we hold in our hands, spiritually speaking, even now. A hope of eternal life. It's an inheritance of riches that we don't get to keep. It's not simply for us. It's for us to use for the sake of others in God's service. And that's why we go back up to verses 1 and 2. All of that in verses 3 to 7 for grounding, explaining how it is, why it is, what it is that should motivate us to do, verses 1 and 2. And so we're going to close very briefly there. We'll think about this more next week, by the way, because I don't have time to pull everything out tonight. But we're going to come back to this as we talk about bearing good fruit and doing good works as those who've been saved by grace next week. But just just three things, if I can, if you can stay with me for a few more minutes this evening. And they're these three. First of all, we see in verse, verses 1 and 2, submission to authority. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority. We're going to come back to this next week, but for this evening, I want again to turn, just turn to the children and to say that God loves it. God wants you to be submissive to those in authority over you to your parents, to your teachers. And what does that kind of submission look like? Well, it looks like obedience. And it looks like the kind of obedience that is first time, not I'll count to three or I'll count to ten kind of obedience. It looks like obedience that isn't grumbling. You don't drag your feet and scowl as you come. It looks like obedience that is from the heart, not just outwardly. And of course, as I say that to the children, you know, you know, don't you, as you listen in, that that's for you as well, as you seek to be obediently submissive to all those as God, God has put in authority over you. That's the kind of obedience, godly obedience, that God requires and desires from us. We can't do that unless grace changes our hearts. But we must do it because grace has changed our hearts. That's the kind of godly life that we now are expected by our God, to live. What about speech? Do you see verse 2? Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. So many things that we're instructed about our speech. Calvin says of this, 
When others annoy you, when they annoy you, how do you respond? Do you respond with restraint, with patience, with kindness, with forgiveness? Do you bite your tongue? Or do you lash out? Do you quarrel? Do you speak unkindly? How do you speak? Is your speech godly, grace-shaped, grace-filled speech? We need to be challenged by that as we go into this week before us. And finally, courtesy. Perfect courtesy toward all people at the end of verse 2. Courtesy is another one of those older-fashioned kinds of, isn't it, that we don't tend to think about. What does it mean to be courteous to all people? Well, it's exactly the opposite of what verse 3 is talking about, of what Augustine talked about. If to be unregenerate is to be curved in on yourself, only wanting to do what you want to do in the way you want to do it with no regard for others around you, then to be saved by grace made new, regenerated, is to be opened outward so that you are others-centered in your life. That you are looking to put others above yourself, to serve others, to put others first. Not to think about how you feel in this conversation or this interaction, but to be looking out for the needs of the other person you're speaking with. Not to only be going head down through your day, your job, your family, your task list, but to have your head up looking around you to see what other needs might be before you by God's provision that day, to seek to serve others. And as we do that, as we do that, as we've been changed by grace, enabled to live in godly ways with this kind of perfect courtesy toward all people, Paul says to Titus, and the Lord says to us, that's the kind of godliness that's going to shine so brightly that it will attract people. It's the grace of regeneration, driving and shaping godly lives to push the mission of the gospel out and draw people in to God's church. That's the big picture for us in Titus 3. Luther says this, and we end with this tonight. Martin Luther is alleged to have said, God doesn't need your good works. He absolutely does not need your good works, but your neighbor does need your good works. And when we've been saved by grace, made new creations, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled by God to do good works for the sake of our neighbor and for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious text this evening. We pray that you would help us, Lord. It is still so hard for us to accept the graciousness of grace because our own pride, our own self-sufficiency and self-centeredness constantly rises in our hearts. Would you humble us before the cross of the Lord Jesus where we see the Son of God crucified for sinners? And would you humble us by your grace and mercy demonstrated there that we might live lives of godly service to you and to others, even in this coming week. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.